Hey there, nature photographers, and welcome to another episode of Capturing Nature, the nature photography podcast that examines the creative, technical, and unpredictable elements of photography in the wild outdoors. I'm your host, Lee Hoy, and today I'm going to spend quite a bit of time talking about visual balance. We'll be examining what does that really mean in an image, because I think it's something that a lot of people don't think about, either pre-capture or post-processing. So we're going to take a look at how can visual balance enhance your nature images. I've got a new category, a new segment I'm going to do called Quick Tips. And today we're going to be talking about how to wait for the right head angle in wildlife photography. And I know I've been photographing a lot in Big Bend lately, some great storms, uh, some great night skies. And you know, there's always all kinds of little gear that all of us photographers like to have. And it's not always about the big lenses and the cameras and the tripods. Sometimes it's about some of that lesser known gear. So today I'm going to share with you a piece of equipment that I just saw at Precision Camera and Video at their awesome location and it was a really unique variable filter adapter. So I'm going to talk about that because you might want to look into it. You know, rather than having to buy filters for all of your lenses, it lets you buy one size filter and use it on multiple lenses. So I'm going to be sharing that. Hope you've been having a great time this summer getting out, shooting some of your favorite, you know, subjects. I know it's hummingbird time here in the mountains of West Texas. I'm excited that they're coming back. I'll be having some hummingbird workshops coming up. So stay tuned. Let's dive right on in in today's subjects. All right, nature photographers, today's segment of seeing through the lens, a new perspective on inspiration. I am going to throw out a concept to you that is called visual balance. And this is a critically important aspect of nature photography. And the reason it is such is because it is often something I, I suspect 90 to 95% of photographers don't consciously think about it, but unconsciously they either do it pre-image or they do it post-image through cropping or they just experience it without ever understanding what is really going on in the image. Visual balance is a concept, it, it's a reality that when you look at images, whether you're scrolling through Instagram, whether you're you know, scrolling through your Facebook feed, whether you're looking at Smug Mug, Flickr, someone's website, when you come across an image that you like, odds are excellent that that image has really good visual balance. Now, there are specific examples of images that have no visual balance that do still work. And there's a reason behind that, but that is not my topic for today. My topic for today is when does visual balance in an image work for us? You know, we've talked about on this podcast of prior episodes, the difference between a snapshot, which is simply documenting a place, a moment, you know, an experience at a party, a wedding, you know, boom, just snapshot. Here we are, here's what we were doing, or here's what it look like and they're not very appealing and most time they have no visual balance it's not a good image you know whereas i like to look for images i want art i want to produce art i want to produce images that are appealing to the viewer uh, more importantly i want to produce images that are appealing to me and then i hope viewers enjoy them visual balance the more you develop this skill the more you'll do it unconsciously it'll just become second nature however for many photographers, it's something, A, you've probably never thought about, B, you've never intentionally sought to develop. Now, for some of you, you may just be naturally gifted at it and have never given it a second thought. But in my experience, most beginning photographers, they don't really give enough weight, enough credence, enough time 
to visual balance. And I will say that often boils down to a lack of patience. And patience is such a critical component of nature photography. And it'll certainly be a topic on a future podcast for sure, because there's nothing more frustrating than being with an individual or a group of photographers who are not being patient enough to get the shot. So when it comes to visual balance, when you're looking at images that you enjoy, that you find pleasing to the eye, that you spend a little longer looking at, you're probably enjoying some aspect of the visual balance in that image. There is a weightedness to images, and that can be done through color, through tonality, through subject size, through subject matter, through a variety of elements that come into play. It can be through framing. It can be through facial expressions. It can be through, you know, eye contact from your subject. That can be how things relate to one another. We're going to look through these, you know. Oh, you can control it through depth of field, through your aperture, your f-stop, right? Uh, through the focus point in the image. There are many ways that visual balance can be achieved. And, and while visual balance per se is not one of the rules of composition, visual balance plays a large role in composition. You know, you have many different rules, so to speak, in composition. You know, the golden triangle, the rule of thirds, the, the spiral. There, there's all kinds of elements of composition, but visual balance is one of them. And it's one that we need to learn to think harder and be more intentional about when we are framing up our image. And obviously in nature photography, again, there are moments where like a cheetah chasing an impala, you're not going to be able to necessarily be as intentional about visual balance when you're capturing that but you certainly will be in post-processing when you may need to crop an image okay so let's jump right into some of the elements that go into visual balance for example the relationship between negative and positive space in an image when we are photographing a bird we often talk about we want the bird looking into or flying into you know, we, we want more negative space in front than we do behind most of the time, okay? Now, occasionally, I like to do a crop, a panoramic-type crop, when I have a wading bird or a shorebird that is walking through the water, and I will put the bird actually further into the negative space so that there's not much positive space in front of the bird, but I need the movement of the water behind to create this visual balance of movement. So the stirred water provides the visual balance in the element, even though the subject is actually not got a lot of positive space in front of it. And that often works. It, it provides balance. If the water were perfectly still, that would not work. So when you're framing up an image, you know, sometimes when you've got a plain blue sky, and, oh, I see this so often with beginning photographers. Oh, boy, we got a really nice blue sky. And if I'm doing landscape photography, like, yeah, uh, we can just go back to bed. Or might as well go shoot macro or wildlife or something else probably. Or shoot up tight, you know, patterns in nature, something. But if you see big swaths of boring sky and you've got a decent foreground, that's going to be out of balance. That, that big blue clear sky just is probably not cutting it right so how the negative space and the positive space in your image relate to one another can provide visual balance in the image how various items or elements in an image relate to one another sometimes it can be as simple as the way a tree bends into or out of an image that can determine if it's visually balanced it can be the body posture 
of an animal that can bring visual balance. Most images where an animal's butt is facing towards us are not that appealing unless we're getting what I call that sexy look back, you know, look over the shoulder from the animal where we have eye contact. And then that can help bring visual balance to the image, make it much more appealing. Now, there are some images every now and then you see where an animal is going moving away and there's no eye contact and it works. But that means there's probably other elements in the image that are working in conjunction with that subject to bring visual balance. You know, one of the things that can be really challenging is photographing herds or flocks or large, uh, you know, agglomerations of animals in any form. And I'm going to talk here a little bit about some techniques I've learned through Japanese freshwater aquarium design that makes me, when I'm framing up a flock or a herd, of some key elements that I want to pay attention to because how those animals relate to one another. You know, if I've got five swans in Yellowstone in winter, I often will wait to pull the trigger until head angles or neck angles are looking good, you know. Sometimes the visual balance can be thrown off by one bird's head being juxtaposed quite differently than the others, right? So I really try to pay attention to some of these details. You know, again, how trees relate, how the foreground relates to the background, how certain clouds relate to each other. Are they diagonal in nature? Are they flat? Are they big and puffy? Overlapping elements. Sometimes, uh, you know, at Bosque del Apache, I've got a workshop coming up this November. I think it's November. It might be early December. Hell, I can never remember dates anymore. You can capture a really nice shot of a sandhill crane's taken off, but if the two birds overlap awkwardly, I don't like that. I like a little bit of separation between the, the birds. Sometimes there's a little bit of overlap that can work. But how those two relate to each other in that overlap, just because it's sharp and just because it's exposed properly doesn't mean it's a visually pleasing image. And too often we think those are just the two major hallmarks. And those are both very key elements, right? Being in focus and being properly exposed. However, we have to look at many more elements to determine if our nature image is pleasing to the eye and this visual balance, how lines, the movement of lines, of vertical lines, horizontal lines, how horizons sit within an image can provide or not provide visual balance. Sometimes there's some cool leading lines, but if you don't frame them properly, it's out of balance. Your horizon, where you place an image, we often talk about not centering an image. Well, you might center a horizon if you got a nice reflection. It, it depends. You will know when you look at images, when you look at a horizon, wow, okay, what is it about the placement of that horizon that brings visual balance? And you know, we often talk about the rule of thirds, placing it on the upper third or the lower third. But why is it occasionally you'll see a centered horizon? Why is that working? There's going to have to be some visual balance in that image. And usually when it's centered, it is not a pleasing image, right? Leading lines can be awesome, but what are they leading to? What are they leading from? Are there awkward leading lines that crisscross that might not bring balance to your image? Colors. There's no doubt that colors play a huge role in visual balance. And that can be because maybe you've got this large area of fairly uniform color and suddenly it's interrupted by a by a non complementary color you know if you look at color wheels we talk about complementary colors there are certain colors on the color wheel that are complementary and there are certain colors that are non-complementary i don't know when the internet was getting born 
there was nothing worse than seeing what I call the Christmas tones, greens and reds. Now, those could be beautiful on Christmas trees and at the holidays and certain decorations. But if you have green or red text against a green or red background, there is it is horrible, horrible. And you'd see some of those god-awful early 90s or whatever websites that would utilize some of that. When you have colors that come into play, if there are colors that aren't complementary, you can throw an image out of balance. And, you know, it might be that you've got this uniformity of trees and all of a sudden there's a dead tree that just is not lending itself to visual balance in an image. And so, like, I love photographing hillsides of fall color, like in Colorado. And not all the trees have to be the same color for there to be visual balance, right? It can be one tree that's slightly off color or a different color or still green. While, you know, if it's an aspen tree, you can have a green aspen and all the others are yellow. And depending on where you place that in the image, it may or may not be a visually balanced image. So colors play a huge role in your visual balance and colors can be influenced by the light of the day. So that nice warm golden hour that's very different than blue hour, which is very different than overhead harsh light, which is very different color than when you have overcast, right? If you have a very overcast sky. If you take an image at a, a certain location at a certain time of day, it might be very visually appealing. However, three hours later, it might be horrific. So learn how to pay attention when you're framing an image for colors that may or may not complement the visual balance of that contrast, shadows and highlights, their placement in the image. Sometimes when we're photographing wildlife or birds, if you're having to look up into a harsh sky and you're looking through a tree, you can get these giant swatches of very high, bright spots in the sky. And that can be a very distracting element in image. However, if you take a step right a foot or two, you might eliminate that contrast that is stealing the eye, so to speak. It's throwing your image out of visual balance. It can be hard. Your brain is having to process a lot of different elements as you compose an image, particularly for nature photography. You know, yeah, it's easy when you've, if you're doing industrial photography and you're trying to photograph some old rusty gears, guess what? They're not going anywhere, right? Uh, if you're trying to do portrait work, guess what? You can tell a person exactly where to stand, how to pose, boom. Now, children, now that's a whole different ballgame probably. But, you know, pet photography, whole different ballgame. It's great. I'm sure we have a, a, a complimentary dog that'll just sit there and uh, notice I didn't include cats. I doubt that happens much unless they're asleep. You know, as you're looking at different contrasts, you really have to pay attention to your lighting, to bright spots, dark spots. You know, if you're trying to shoot a high key scene and all of a sudden there's this big dark swatch that suddenly as you realize there's a big branch sticking out, well, that's going to be very visually distracting. It's going to throw your visual balance out of kilter. So, looking for large elements of contrast, big contrast, big gaps in dynamic range, that can throw an image out of visual balance. If there's out of character elements, that can throw an image out of balance. You know, maybe you didn't catch a telephone pole that had jutted into the scene, right? Maybe you didn't notice that there was a car coming into the scene, or maybe you took a picture of a group of birds and you clipped one of the birds in the flock halfway, you know, so that half its body is sticking in the image. And maybe the rest of the image is great, would be very visually balanced if you simply clone out that half a bird at the edge of the frame. So you get out of character elements that are 
not expected. Now that can on occasion work in an image, but that usually isn't random. That is usually intentional. I mean, it's rare that a photobombed image, other than being humorous, really is visually balanced. You know what I mean? So like out here, we've got pronghorn out here around Fort Davis. And if I've got three or four pronghorn, I really have to watch. You know, one will stop and feed or stop and look at it. And all of a sudden, a, another one starts to walk into the frame. And there's just a little bit. So I might need to move right, move left, might need to be patient, let one of them move out of the frame or compose both of them if possible. However, I'm going to talk about two animals are not as good as three in a composition. So we'll talk about that here in a minute. So another one are distractions, branches coming into a frame where your eye didn't catch it or a rock. It's often something at an edge of a frame for, for new nature photographers. And, and sometimes even for pros, if they get in a hurry, not really paying attention all four corners, sometimes you realize, ah, oh, or the wind might be blowing and a tall blade of grass that, that wasn't in your image when you first looked suddenly gets blown over and overlaps a bird. You know, maybe you got a dick sisal in a field that's up singing and it's got, you know, beautiful uh, golden, you know, wheat field. And there's this one dick sisal. The wind was just light. And all of a sudden you got this great head pose. You got beautiful light. You've got a, a bird with the bill open singing, but there's one blade of grass that the wind blew over and overlapped. It, it, it's going to throw some things out of visual balance when you're looking at your image sometimes. Uh, sharp versus blurry. What elements in the image are sharp and what are blurry? An improper use of your aperture or your f-stop. Uh, an improper focal point can often lead to an image that is out of balance. I see a lot of bird photographers, new and amateur alike, who don't realize that the focal point grabbed the wing, uh, the edge of the wing, and that by the time the depth of field hits the eye, it's already begun to degrade enough where it really, it's distracting. Uh, we want that focal point on the eye and everybody goes, ah, oh, bird tracking. Yep. It's awesome. But it isn't a hundred percent, man, particularly because a lot of y'all are trying to photograph a bird at a freaking quarter of a mile and wondering what the hell's wrong with your camera. Hint, it's you. When we're looking at an image, we use aperture to control the viewer's eye as it moves through the image. That's one element we use, okay? And so what is sharp? What is blurry? If we use an improper f-stop or aperture for a particular scene, we didn't pick the correct creative aperture. Yeah, our exposure might be correct, but it might not be, as Brian Peterson likes to say, it might not be the creatively correct exposure. I really think that uh, learning which f-stops to use in what settings will go a long way. People often get in a rush and sometimes these elements of, of an image, whether it be shutter speed or aperture ISO become not as important. They, they only focus on shutter speed. They only focus on aperture f-stop. They only focus on the ISO, you know, and I think it's important that we really learn to spend the time assessing depth of field in an image and how focal plane and how uh, what is sharp begins to degrade immediately as you move away from the focal plane. Probably a topic of a future podcast. So as you're looking at your image, let's say you've got a, a wonderful storm scene out here in Big Ben. You're out here on one of my summer storms in starry skies. When I am framing up a landscape image, I'm really paying close attention to the visual balance of clouds in my sky. 
Is it overweighted? Does it complement the mountains that are in the foreground? You know, if I have a slight tilt from left to right with the mountains, well, do I have a slight tilt the other way from the clouds to help provide a counterbalance to that? It's not just a matter of picking your lens and setting on, putting it on your camera and setting on a tripod and just, okay, I've got my horizon at the rule of thirds, you know, lower rule of thirds. Now I've got a great, I've got a pretty sky. But how are the clouds distributed throughout your sky? If you've got, you know, creosote bushes out here in the desert in front, how are they uh, spread out? Is it just a bunch of crazy overlap? Or is there actual some nice balance? Are the rocks, you know, out here we get a lot of great rocks formations. And so as I'm framing an image, are the rocks leading my eye to the sky and the clouds? Are the skies leading my eye to the rocks? Does it feel comfortable when I look at what I have framed up? Or am I just clipping rocks in half and all of a sudden there's this awkward rock intruding? Now, I'm not saying every image, you, there are some images where you clip a rock and it works well. But how does that fit into the overall balance of the image? So again, I often say, as you're looking through social media or on websites, when you find an image, now start analyzing the visual balance of it. How is it weighted? Where's the bulk of the visual weight? Right? And when I'm saying weighted, I'm not talking about, oh, there's a whale in the scene, so he's the heaviest. Well, that is a big subject. And if he's breaching, he is going to be a big part of the image, possibly. But I see some phenomenal images of whales breaching where the whale is actually relatively small. But the angle of his body can lend itself to the visual balance of an image. Uh, blowholes, man, when they come up and blow and, and you get that great water you know, mist uh, backlit. I've got some beautiful images from Alaska a year ago or two years ago. It, it just beautiful the way it's backlit. But even that, I wanted it properly placed in the overall image. Is your sky too small or, or is it too big in an image? If you've got a boring sky, you want to be real careful. You know, we want to, we might want to frame close to the foreground. If you've got this awesome sky, you know, I see pictures and I'm picking on some of the people who really aren't photographers out there and they see a beautiful sky and they take a picture of just the sky. Oh my God, it just doesn't work. It's like Milky Way images of nothing but the Milky Way. Most time that, yeah, okay, great. Yeah, there's nothing though. There's nothing to draw your eye. I know many are just excited they actually captured it, but you know, just because you capture a bolt of lightning itself doesn't make it a great image. You know, I've seen a lot of crappy images of mount lines, which are spectacular subjects. I've seen a lot of crappy images of lightning, tornadoes. I still see crappy images, even though the subject had the potential to be a phenomenal image. You still need all the other elements that comprise a great image to come into play. You know, in terms of visual balance, was the field of view based on your lens choice? Was it too wide, too narrow? Would you have been better off shooting a long lens panoramic that would have brought proper visual balance to the scene instead of trying to capture the same field of view with the 12 millimeter lens? There's a world of difference in a 12 millimeter field of view and an 80 millimeter lens panoramic image that encompasses the same angle of view. Those are two extremely different looking images and they can have tremendously different visual balance when you take a look at them. Where's the sun, the moon or the Milky Way in the image? You know, as we move later in the year here, the Milky Way gets more and more vertical and that can be more challenging to compose properly. You know, a lot of people are just going to stick it right in the center of the image. Well, there's a giant object in the sky and I'm putting it right in the middle, but that's often not going to work unless you have something else symmetrical in your image that, that lends itself to a centered image and it's still being visually balanced.
So what are some repeating patterns? Earl Nottingham was uh, out here co-leading with me at the last uh, Wildside Nature Tours, you know, Big Ben, Summer Storms and Starry Skies workshop. He called everybody over. Normally, I am not a big fan of dead stumps, dead dead trees and whatnot. I see so many beginners that they're drawn to it and so often it doesn't work. Now, I've got some great images in the Galapagos and other places, but you have to be very careful. You know, sticking a big dead stump against a boring blue sky, I see, it just, just don't do it. It doesn't work. But Earl found this really cool mesquite tree stump, still alive down at the base, but it had three branches arching off of it. And I'll be darned if the clouds above did not replicate the same arching pattern of those three branches. It was a gorgeous find. It was a great find. I converted it to black and white. And I love that image. That stump would have been boring as crap, I think, without that repeating pattern. And when Earl called us over and I saw there was a stump and I thought, well, let's go see. And he goes, I got a great repeating pattern. As soon as he said that phrase, I thought, okay, let's go over. And I mean, sure enough, man, it worked well. It was so neat. A really nice image turned out well, but it was because there's visual balance of the image due to the repeating pattern. Now, where you placed everything on the horizon and how you framed with the clouds made a big difference. You just didn't have visual balance just because there was a repeating pattern. I mentioned earlier, one of the concepts I've learned back in the day, I've kept many a saltwater aquarium and, and had a nice freshwater aquarium. Now where I live, I, I travel too much and I don't have air conditioning in the house. So it makes it very challenging to try to keep an aquarium, but I've always enjoyed aquariums. And I've particularly enjoyed looking at Japanese freshwater aquarium design. I mean, they will spend years and prune with extreme detail and they really take their art seriously and they have big competitions. If you've never looked at, just do a Google search on Japanese freshwater aquariums and you will, your mind will be blown at the beauty of these creations. One of the concepts uh, is Iwagumi. They use certain stones and you don't just randomly pick stones. I mean, every selection of every stone is very specific and i'm not going to go into the names of the different stones but one of the concepts i learned there is they always use an odd number of stones one three five and as you start looking at their designs sure enough and odd numbers are much more visually pleasing than even so if i am assessing a flock or a herd of animals for an image and it's a smaller number you know when you get into you know a big a big group of you know 300 walruses up in the arctic you know i'm not too worried about whether there's 300 or 301 right but let's let's say i've got some avocets out on a playa in the panhandle of texas or in the colorado flats whatever it might be or you're up in montana near a lake where they're breeding or something and let's say you've got you got a group of them, a flock of them. And let's say there's eight of them. I would look to try to frame my image with an odd number of them if there's enough gap between them to do so where it makes it visually appealing. For some reason, odd numbers of subjects lend themselves to a much more visually balanced image. You can do it with two and four, trust me. I mean, you know, think about great wedding photographers. I'm heading out this afternoon to join uh, Manny out in Big Bend to assist him on a wedding shoot. I'm not a wedding photographer, but I know the Big Bend region better than anyone. So he wanted me to come out and help him find the right spots for the best images. And I think I'm going to take a night sky shot of them tonight. So I'm looking forward to that. The reality is, is, you know, when I'm looking at flocks or groups of animals, I am often trying to find odd numbers. Just look through 
a lot of elements in nature. And I think you often find that odd numbers are more visually appealing than even numbers. You know, I saw this quote in a book I've been looking at, the quotes by Robert Henry. And he said, the eye should not be led to a place where there is nothing to see. In an image where there's no visual balance, that will happen. You'll find your eye wandering aimlessly with nowhere to settle. When we compose an image, when I capture an awesome image, I know it works because I know where the viewer's eye generally starts and where it ends. And I know the path it travels throughout that image. You know, if you remember the old, I think it was Family Circus cartoon where there were always dash lines behind where, or it may have been Dennis the Menace. I think it was Family Circus where there were always dash lines following along behind. It may have been Dennis the Menace. I don't care. I'm getting old and it doesn't really matter. But you know how they would just be all circuitous and and just wandering and all over the place? The illustrator of that comic, he was intentional in how he drew those things. I don't think it was just always random because it guided our eye in a certain way. And a great image is going to do the same thing, whether it's a blue-footed booby diving into the uh, surf in Galapagos, you know, whether you are composing a night sky image in Utah, whether you are taking a moment and trying to capture a beautiful thunderstorm out here in Big Ben or a beach sunset, whatever it is, visual balance and guiding the viewer's eye is going to be critical to a pleasing image. As I've mentioned, you know, what are some of the causes of unbalanced images? For example, shooting a, a subject horizontally when it should have been shot vertically. It just blows my mind how little I see people shoot vertically. I have a saying, a vertical subject often warrants a vertical composition. Not always, but a vertical subject often warrants a vertical composition. And that's one of the reasons I love battery grips or built-in grips, you know, uh, whether it's my uh, EM1X with a built-in grip, I added a vertical grip to one of my OM1s, the other one I've left ungripped. And when I get my third one, I'll probably uh, grip it for macro work. So I'll, I'll have a body for wildlife, one for landscape night sky and, and one for macro. And I program all my custom modes based on different uh, types of shooting within those genres. I want to encourage you to really be more cognizant of vertical subjects. Now, I often shoot a vertical subject in a horizontal composition, but that will depend entirely upon the surroundings of that subject. So again, vertical subjects often warrant vertical compositions. Another reason why your image might be unbalanced is that, you know, you didn't use negative space properly. You know, you might have a lot of empty sky. You know, you might have one lonely cloud and this giant swath of blue sky that just isn't cutting it, you know. Now, again, Ansel Adams has some great shots where there's a lot of empty sky. But if you look, it's in black and white and he's darkened it and the moon might be popping out like crazy. So, again, there are elements that can work in that, but it's still a very visually balanced image when you look at it. You might have your subject too far forward or rearward in an image. You might be close to the rule of thirds, but if you're just a little off and the negative space isn't filled with something to, to draw the viewer's eye, that might not work in your image. Ah, oh, man, here's another visually unbalanced one. How about when people do these crappy composites that I can kind of rant on? There's an advertisement for a night sky online class, and I'm not going to pick on the particular photographer, but... He's got the Milky Way. He has a huge storm cloud that has red on the bottom of it. So that would require the sun shining on the bottom of the cloud. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe your eyesight's better than mine. But so far, when the sun is up, I can't see the Milky Way. And then he has a lake perfectly still with a phenomenal Milky Way reflection. Well, 
The thing is, when you're shooting water, even when it's really still, it's always moving a little bit. So the reflection of the Milky Way is normally not tack sharp. So his lighting doesn't fit what I've seen. And believe me, I live in the darkest skies in the lower 48. I mean, I know what a Milky Way looks like at night. And some of these Milky Way photographers, their processing is getting to the point where it's just absurd on some of the things they're trying to create in their images. And again, it's art. Great. Have a ball. But... When you see a composite of a hawk, you know, shot with a 600 millimeter with the sun behind the photographer, and then there's this incredible sunset sky behind it that would require the sun be behind the bird. It's like, uh, it's not visually balanced. That's why you should stop doing them. It's really tough. You know, you've got to work well. You know, we do blending sometimes of a blue hour shot of the foreground and a nighttime shot of the Milky Way, and you go to blend it, you have to work really hard to have visual balance so that your foreground doesn't look too bright. And it can be a little challenging at times. Poorly placed horizons can result in uh, poor visual balance. Uneven horizons. Uh, this one blows my mind how people don't even look at the horizon to see if it's level. A, if your camera has a built-in level, always have it on. I have it on for wildlife photography. I'm paying attention to it just because sometimes when you're on a slope, you may not realize the animal's standing on a slope and you're shooting what you think is level and only to come find out later, if you try to level your horizon, you're going to clip part of the animal. So always, always, always use in-camera levels. You know, non-symmetrical yet centered subjects. Ooh, that can be terrible. And that is the bane of the beginning bird photographer, centered subjects, because they don't know how to move their focus points. Clipping or trimming subjects in awkward locations. Like you see a picture of a person and they clip their feet off. Well, there are ways to not always shoot a full subject, but depending on where you're going to clip a subject may or may not work. So poorly clipped or trimmed subjects in an image. Uh, sometimes if, you're, if your white balance is off, that can really throw an image out of whack visually. Just that alone can be like, ooh, or, oh my gosh, there are a couple of photographers that always post on the Friends of Big Bend National Park Facebook group. My God, the saturation slider, they must, the first thing they must do is go and push that all the way to the right at 100 in Lightroom or whatever editing post-processing software they're doing because their images are just god-awful. I think I've never seen greens or blues in nature like that and i am outside literally every day i mean even when i'm in my house right now i have three sliding glass doors open the french doors right here by me open i can see out and i know what colors of blue green brown grays reds you name it that i see every day and you look at an image of an area you know well and you're like my god i've never seen that color in my life you know stop doing that those are some of the key elements of visual balance. And again, a great, great exercise is uh, as you come across images you like, stop and ask yourself, what is it about this image that brings visual balance? Why do my eyes and hence my brain find this image appealing? What is it about it? And as you begin to assess that, I think a lot of people get tricked by Facebook likes. You know, I see some photographers who get 800 likes on a really crappy shot. And it's because they know a lot of people. They like a lot of people. They're nice people. And people just want to like their image. But that doesn't, please hear me out. Great likes on Facebook do not translate to a great image, right? The image I've sold for the most money, hands down, got 17 likes on Facebook. Believe me, I do not gauge my photography quality on the number of followers, on the number of likes, on the number of hearts, whatever it might be. That is not how you assess a great image. 
now you can get the crowd riled up if you suggested it in a great image when it has a lot of likes. There's a photographer out here in West Texas who's very loved by a lot of people, and he gets some okay images, but overall he's not that great. If you really assess his images close, many are out of focus, many are poorly composed you know the colors aren't always very accurate you know but he's loved because a lot of people know him and like him great rock one to have a ball i got no issue with that but that doesn't mean your photographs are great just because a couple of people asked to order a couple of your calendars that doesn't make your images great man there's a lot more to it i do not gauge any of my images on if they sell if they don't sell I mean, I have clients come and shoot with me and people ask to buy theirs. They don't ask to buy mine. I don't know. I don't care. That's great. Awesome. We might have almost identical images. I don't gauge whether or not mine's good based on that. I figure if I tell them how to get that image and that says something about my photography, great. Rock on. I'm ecstatic for them. I've had some people come out here and sell, get macro images. They didn't shoot macro and sold them. And I don't, I don't try to sell images, but I don't really sell macro images. Man, that's awesome. I figure that's great, man. You know, learn how to assess your images, though, and determine what makes them really good. Assess what makes your image well. Study it. What makes other people's images look good? And I promise you, much of the time, it's going to turn out to be visual balance. All right, nature photographers, I don't know if you're like me, but we have a thing about our gear, don't we? It doesn't matter whether it's big or small, expensive or cheap. Uh, I know my house, I live up here in a little 700 square foot cabin, basically up on top of a mountain. And I, where I'm sitting here recording this, I mean, I've got my kitchen stuff because I like to cook and grill. And I've got uh, a little two person love seat. I've got a huge table I had built for high speed macro, which is basically now my computer workstation. I have rearranged tables so that I have my podcast recording area right here. But as I look down into my bedroom, I can see about 12 camera bags in various locations holding all different kinds of photography gear, whether it be for camera trapping. I recently got a star tracker to try to do some deep space stuff. You know, I'm looking at a, a GoPro bag. I'm looking at a Atomos a monitor to do for video, which I haven't had much time for. But hopefully my niece, who's just graduated from uh, Pepperdine with a uh, degree in film, I'm hoping we can work together on some stuff. So I've got all this camera gear. I mean, I've got it out in my shed. I've got it on the front porch for high-speed hummingbird stuff. I mean, it's, it's absurd, right? And the more genres you get into, the more gear you have. But every now and then I come across uh, in, in the segment, If the Shoe Fits, where I talk about you know, gear, I decided to talk a little bit about some under the radar gear. And the one I'm going to talk about today, I just picked up two of them at Precision Camera and Video there in Austin, Texas, and now in Houston, Texas as well. And, and before I talk about this subject, can I give you again, and you're going to hear me say this over and over again, if you want this piece of gear, please, 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 if you have a local camera store, go buy it from them. Who cares if you have to pay a little tax? You have to pay a little tax anyways, probably. And why do we need Bezos to build another spaceport out in a previously dark sky area and light it up? Please, please, please support your local camera stores. If a photographer you do workshop with has a link to buy it, please, you know, throw a couple extra bucks their way. Help them out. Because generally, we're the ones y'all call to ask uh, information on buying stuff. Uh, I don't think you're going to get a hold of anybody at Amazon to give you information about the tripod or this particular piece of gear I'm going to talk about. So please reward those that you invest time with and uh, that they invest time with you as well. So there's my sales pitch on buy local. So I came across, I, I was looking at filters and, and I don't know about you, but I'm a filter addict. I like to use them for my landscape. 
polarizing for landscape and for, um, you know, like shooting the rays in at the beach there in the Galapagos and for whales and whatnot, you know, and waterfalls and, you know, all that kind of cool stuff that we use them for. But I hate changing filters. I hate having to unscrew, you know, I hate having two lenses that are 72 millimeters, both of them are on my black rapid strap and having one polarizer. Oh, I want to shoot with this one. Now I got to unscrew it off this one and screw it on that one. Because the more you have to do that, the less likely you are to use it. What I've been doing is I've just been buying multiples for all the different lenses I have. But I came across this device that uh, was put out by H and Y Digital. I said that slowly because of my accent. Sometimes it can be hard to understand. Let's face it. I have a face built for radio, but I have a voice built for nothing. So uh, that makes it really hard. H and Y Digital came up with what they call it's a variable filter adapter. And it's a brilliant idea. So what I bought, I bought two of them because so often my my clients show up without a filter for their lens. And I'm probably going to get the whole kit at some point. And what they've done for the one I'm holding in my hand, let me spin it here. See that? So it rotates. It's a really cool device. And this, this filter, this variable filter adapter, they have them in different sizes. The one I'm holding is a, is four 77 millimeter filters, okay? And normally, let's say you've got a 62 millimeter filter, I mean, a, a lens, you know, and then you've got one that uses, you know, 72, 67, whatever it might be. And then you have to buy different step-down rings or step, you know, whatever, step-down rings to use these filters on. Well, this device is brilliant. You screw your 77 millimeter filter on the front, and then as you spin it, it will adapt and screw onto the front of lenses that vary anywhere from 52 to 72 millimeters in size. Okay. So now I don't have to buy all the different size step down rings. I just buy one and it covers a range of lenses. And the way this thing works is again, you screw the filter on the front. This is for circular filters, screw in filters only. Screw in circular filters only. That's what this adapter is for. It is not for a 100 millimeter square system, 150 millimeter square system. It will not work for lenses that won't take screw in filters. So like the uh, Mzuko Digital 7 to 14 with that big bulbous uh, lens element. I have a special adapter made by Nisi that I attach to the front of that lens and I have to use a square filter system for that. But for all of my lenses that will utilize screw in filters, this is a lifesaver. And I tested it out here a minute ago based on something that Robert Backman, uh, salesman at Precision Camera, told me. He said that they screwed one onto a camera and they held it up by that. And sure enough, I put my camera, my lens together. I screwed this on the front of the 825 F4 Mzuko lens. I just held it by this adapter. Man, it was, it was strong and sturdy. So the beauty of it is I screwed on a circular polarizer, 77 millimeter, and then I just spun this adapter until it was smaller than the screw-on part of the lens. And then I let go until it expanded out, and then I just screwed it down. So with this, I can now basically have multiple step-down rings all in one. So instead of having to carry all these different size step-down rings and dig through and look for the little tiny numbers on the side, now I can just grab one of these. And they call this the Revo Ring, H&Y Revo Ring, R-E-V-O-R-I-N-G, Revo Ring. Here's what they've done. So they have one where you would have 52 millimeter filters and you could adapt that to 37 
to 49 millimeter lenses. Then they have a 67 millimeter filter one that you could adapt to 46 to 62 millimeter lenses. They have this one I'm holding. There you go. The 77 millimeter that works from on uh, lenses from 52 to 72 millimeters. They have an 82 that works on lenses, 82 millimeters to 67. And then they have a 95, which works on lenses 95 to 82 millimeters. With just a couple of these, depending upon your lens filter sizes, then this will save you from carrying around so many different step-down rings. And so you can buy, like, let's say I'd found this first. Well, I would just buy my largest lens um, that, that I put a filter on is the 300 F4 M Zuko, and that is a 77 millimeter filter size. Now, my 150 to 400 takes a 95 millimeter. There are some, um, you know, there's a polarizer out there for it, but I, I don't really use it on that lens. So my biggest lens that I use it on is 77. I could have bought all my screw-in filters at 77. And then it would have worked on all of my landscape lenses. Uh, I would have needed a different size for my macro lens. But nevertheless, boom, right here, I've covered, I think, four different lenses. This I can use it on my 300 millimeter F4. I could use the filter direct, of course. But then on my 12 to 42.8, I could use it on my uh, 8 to 25 F4. Uh, gosh, what other ones? I've got other landscape lenses. Oh, I can use it on my 40 to 150 F2.8. So there you go, three lenses, boom, all covered by a 77 millimeter filter, even though the only one that would take that would be the 300. So it's a great design. It seems very well built. I have not used it in the field. I literally just got home with this thing. So uh, this morning I got it out and I thought, man, I'm gonna tell you all about this so that before you go buy 87 different filters, that using this system now, you can really minimize the number of filters you have to buy because I like high quality filters and they do certainly add up in price. So H&Y Digital, the H&Y Revo Ring. So again, if you please don't buy it off one of the big online stores, please, 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 if at all possible, go down, support your local camera store and get it from them or ask if they carry it. If they don't, maybe they'll start carrying them. I'm very happy with it so far. I, like I said, I bought two of the same size because inevitably I get clients that don't have step-down filters. So I'm gonna end up getting the whole kit, probably for sure the 67 and the 77, maybe the 82, so that clients who come in, I can adapt adapt a, a filter form or maybe they can adapt their own. So wanted to share that new piece of equipment with you and if the shoe fits. All right, I've got a new segment I'm going to call the quick tip. And this is where I'm not going to spend as much time delving onto a particular topic. But one I wanted to bounce off you today is how to wait on the right head angle for wildlife photography. Now, again, as I mentioned earlier in the uh, segment on uh, visual balance, there that is not always possible. You know, a flying bird, a uh, predator-prey interaction, something moving quickly, you know, a flying bee. That can be extremely challenging. However, as technology improves and with tracking, like on my uh, OM system cameras, you know, we've got the AI tracking, uh, you know, it's getting better and better and easier and easier to do so. But particularly for, you know, portrait type work, even environmental shots, I'm amazed at how often I hear clicking. Of course, with mirrorless, it's getting harder and harder to know when someone's taking a picture. But learning to be patient for the right head angle will help your nature photography evolve quickly. 
you know, so often we're just ecstatic as a beginning photographer. We're just ecstatic. We have an animal in the frame. Clickety, click, 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 click. And the birds never looked at you once, you know, and it's got a horrible head angle or the body and the head angle are a bad one or it's hiding its head under something, you know, or, or there's a branch that's coming right across the face. Whereas if you simply were patient enough to let the bird look left instead of right, that branch might no longer be a problem in your image. So again, this concept of patience I bring in waiting for just a slight head turn. If the bird is looking at me, I would like to see both eyes. Otherwise, I don't like seeing a full eye and a partial eye. I like being able to see, have enough of a head turn where I might have the one eye, you know, a few degrees off center, you know, one to five degrees off, just a little bit of a head turn where I'm not picking up that other eye, or I want to have the animal looking at me in such a way where I am capturing both eyes. Those I tend to find, tend to find are more visually pleasing. So, you know, particularly as fast as some of these new cameras can take images, you know, you know, I'm shooting at 30 frames per second or something on Pro Capture or even higher, 120. I don't want to be unnecessarily pressing the shutter button when the head angle is not working. If you can begin to calm yourself, and I tell you what, I've recently started yoga using Manflow Yoga out of Austin, Texas. Uh, that guy's got videos and it gets rid of all the frou-frou silly crap that a lot of people get into. And it just is about how to get your body, you know, limber and, and in good shape. And, and I'm loving it. I, but, uh, you know, one of the things I love the most out of it is the breathing aspect of it and learning to relax and calm. You know, I was a wrestler in high school and used to, I was just, you know, balls to the wall for, you know, all the, the, the entire period, you know, two minute periods. And man, I'd be so tired. And once I learned how to relax at certain types and yet still keep somebody under control or remain physically engaged, but not be burning all my energy all the time, it made a huge difference. My, my wrestling ability jumped light years. Same thing for photography. As I've learned that even in crazy moments to still remain calm and focused, and that includes waiting on proper head angles, waiting on proper visual contact from a subject. So whether it be for birds, even insects, uh, you know, I remember photographing here in Ecuador, there was this wasp I kept trying to photograph and I haven't been able to identify its species, but it's gorgeous. It's black and it has these blue lines. It looks like a race car. Uh, designer, like a Ferrari designer, right? Designed this wasp. It is gorgeous. I think I've got a shot of it on my smug mug under my Ecuador um, folder. It, it's this beautiful, but it was constantly on the move hunting, but I saw it land on this leaf and this leaf had like three water drops. And I thought, aha, it's going to go get a drink. And when it gets a drink, I'll be able to get a picture of it, but I knew its head would be down a little bit. So I actually tried to crouch down a little lower so that the head angle would be better for the image. Caterpillars, recently we were photographing, had, had a, a big, huge uh, hatch of uh, caterpillars. And I, I don't remember the species off the top of my head of, of this moth. And they get these big bright yellow with some black dots. Trying to get where the head was in a proper position, I was trying to do some environmental shots with a wide angle because when they were feeding or just sitting, I could get up close. And I want to show some environmental shots of their habitat. So I'm using a wide angle, very close uh, focus on this subject. But the head angle on that caterpillar makes all the difference in that image. It doesn't care how pretty the background is if the head angle's not good. Or, you know, if the spike on the rear end is sticking up, but you can't even see the head, that's not a great image. So I want you to focus on developing patience on this. You know, if you're sitting in a bird blind, maybe in South Texas or in Africa or wherever you're at, and you're in a bird blind, just because a warbler comes in 
and you get a shot of a beautiful black and white warbler, you know, or a Townsend's warbler out here in Big Bend. If he's looking away from you, that's not going to be an appealing shot. Just wait, wait, wait. And as soon as you see that head start getting the right spot, bam, bam, I'm often when I'm leading a workshop, I'll say, hold, hold, don't, don't take a picture. Wait, wait. Okay, now, now. And that animal might turn its head properly. Might even sometimes, depending on where you're at, if it's legal and ethical in certain situations, you know, like a lot of ethics, I'm not a hardcore black and white. There are some things that are, but a lot of times it's gray, you know, a quick whistle, particularly like with a deer, you know, a little simple whistle might get them just look your way. Sometimes you don't have to whistle. Maybe it's just a quick movement of your hand. I know if I'm photographing uh, venomous snakes, I was working with a photographer out here in West Texas a few days ago on an article for coming up for Texas Highway Magazine. And, you know, sometimes just moving your hand will catch the snake's attention and it might turn its head ever slightly. You know, sometimes once they get settled in a position, you need them just to turn a little bit. And sometimes just a subtle movement of the hand back and forth. And they'll pick up on that movement and they'll turn their head real quick to assess. And then they'll re- then you stop and they'll relax and boom, you've got them in the proper positioning. So whether it's an insect, whether it's a mammal, you know, whether it's a whale, whatever it might be, I really want to try to make sure I've got a good head angle in that image. And that's going to make your images much more visually appealing because oftentimes it's that eye contact that really brings people into the world of your subject. Combine patience with waiting on the right head angle and you'll save yourself from having to delete a lot of crappy shots. You'll not fill up your buffer. You know, so often if you're just shooting away, if I see a bird, if the wind is coming into my face, I know a bird is going to take off that way. Well, I better get a shot real quick because otherwise it's just going to be a butt shot. So again, learning these different elements of and behaviors of your subjects and knowing what may or may not get a subject to look your way can help a lot. So be thinking about waiting on the right head angle for your subject. All right, nature photographers, that's going to conclude our podcast for today. I hope you learned a lot about visual balance. I hope my tip on making sure to be patient and capturing the right head angle for wildlife photography and the H&Y Revo Ring. And by the way, they're not a sponsor. I don't get paid anything to share that with you. Uh, did you hear that H&Y, though? You could send a few bucks my way if you like. Uh, I hope that this has been informational. I do have some really great upcoming events I'd like to share with you. Wildside Nature Tours has an online webinar platform. We use Big Marker. If you go to wildsidenaturetours.com, click on the, the uh, webinar information, you can go to our link. Both myself, uh, Elise Bender, a Tamron uh, ambassador, Jennifer Lee Warner, a new photographer of the Wild Side, all of us have some new webinars coming up, both free and paid. I know I'm going to have the art and science of reading and chasing natural light. This is the most extensive presentation I've put together to date. That's only $20. I'll be doing a free Yellowstone in winter uh, photography presentation. I know coming up for OM System, I'll be doing one for National Camera Store. That'll be called the Nervous Nature Photographer's Guide to Shooting at High ISOs. I hope you might consider joining me on one of my workshops. I'll be going back to the Galapagos here in September. I think that one sold out, but I'll be going, I can't remember, I think it's July of 2023, I'll be in Galapagos. Check the Wildside website for that. Precision Camera, our Bosque del Apache Wildlife Refuge. I make sure we get out early, we get a great spot, we get some phenomenal 
final shots. Earl Nottingham and I'll be traveling again to Yellowstone in winter uh, in early 2023. And Zimbabwe, I believe I'm down to two spots if you'd like to join me in Africa on an amazing experience. I'm updating my website, tourbigbend.com. I'll be putting some Milky Way, some night sky workshops next year out here in the Big Bend area. I'm going to be adding the Fort Davis Marfa area to my web workshop. So be taking a look at 2023. I've got a lot of fun things coming up. I would sure love it if you'd give a, a click on the like button and the subscribe. Hop over to my social media at Facebook, Big Ben Birding and Photo Tours, and Instagram, Big Ben Birding Photo Tours. Love a follow. Great talking to you today. I hope I meet you out in the field somewhere. Get out and get to shooting.